0: Mac Folklore Radio, read by Derek Folklore.org by Andy Hertzfeld PC Board Aesthetics, July 1981 We hand-built the first Macintosh prototypes using a technique called wire wrapping, where each signal is routed by wrapping an individual wire around two pins. Burl Smith did the first prototype himself. Others were done by Brian Howard and Dan Kotke. But wire wrapping is error-prone and time-consuming. By the spring of 1981, the Macintosh's hardware design was stable enough for us to create a printed circuit board, which would drastically reduce prototype turnaround time. We recruited Colette Askeland from the Apple II Group to lay out the board. After working with Burl and Brian for a couple of weeks, she taped out the design and had a few dozen boards manufactured. In June of 81, we started holding weekly management meetings to discuss the issues of the week. Burl presented an intricate blueprint of the PC board layout, which had already been used to build a few working prototypes, blown up to four times the actual size. Steve Jobs began critiquing the layout on a purely aesthetic basis. That part's really pretty, he proclaimed. But look at the memory chips. That's ugly. The lines are too close together. George Crow, our recently hired analog engineer, interrupted Steve. Who cares what the PC board looks like? The only thing that's important is how well it works. Nobody's going to see the PC board. Steve responded strongly. I'm going to see it. I want it to be as beautiful as possible, even if it's inside the box. A great carpenter isn't going to use lousy wood for the back of a cabinet, even though nobody's going to see it. George started to argue with Steve, since he hadn't been on the team long enough to know that it was a losing battle. Fortunately, Burl interrupted. Well, that was a difficult part to lay out because of the memory bus, Burl responded. If we change it, it might not work as well electrically. Okay, I'll tell you what, said Steve. Let's do another layout to make the board prettier, but if it doesn't work as well, we'll change it back. So we invested another $5,000 or so to make a few boards with a new Steve-approved memory bus layout. But sure enough, the new boards didn't work properly, as Burl had predicted, so we switched back to the old design for the next run of prototypes. As Pixar used to say, we sand the undersides of the drawers. Hugo Fiennes and Scott Hertz at the Computer History Museum on the layout of the original iPhone motherboard.
1: There was one request that came through my manager on the
0: first one. They loved the board. It was really pretty. They, they were going to show the PCB, and there was a request about moving the CPU a couple of millimetres to the left to make it symmetrical, <laughs> <laughs> but, but it was with proviso of, this is not going to happen, really,
1: because I'm sure it's there for a, a real reason, like the PMU took the other route. Anyway, uh, on the iPhone 4, when they had the A4 processor. They'd labeled the PMU because the processor's on the other side of the board. <laughs> and it was like, it's much bigger than that. And, but, you know, all the engineers were laughing about this. It's a
0: beautiful, beautifully done photo, though, I'd say. Very nice <laughs> photo. <laughs> Steve also said, absolutely no fans in this project. I don't want to hear no. the hum of a fan. Do, do you know where that came from? Because I'm, I'm a musician couldn't stand noisy computers, I, I spent a long time telling teaching Java about convection. Right.
1: The Macintosh 2 had a device on the bill of materials that was a CED, That was to slip it past jobs. It was a convection enhancement device. (laughs) (laughs) And it was a little (laughs) fan. Nice little employees, you guys are.
0: Folklore.org by Andy Hertzfeld. Diagnostic port, July 1981. Expandability, or the lack thereof, was far and away the most controversial aspect of the original Macintosh hardware design. Apple co founder Steve Wozniak was a strong believer in hardware expandability, and he endowed the Apple II with luxurious expandability in the form of seven built in slots for peripheral cards. There was even a clever architecture that allowed each card to incorporate built in software on its own ROM chip. This flexibility allowed the Apple II to be adapted to a wide range of applications and quickly spawned a thriving third-party hardware industry. But Jeff Raskin had a very different point of view. He thought that slots were inherently complex and were one of the obstacles holding back personal computers from reaching a wider audience. He thought that hardware expandability made it more difficult for third-party programmers who couldn't count on consistent underlying hardware. Jeff's Macintosh vision had Apple cranking out millions of identical, easy-to-use, low-cost appliance computers. Complexity was therefore avoided. Apple's other co-founder, Steve Jobs, didn't agree with Jeff about many things, but they both felt the same way about expandability. It was a bug instead of a feature. Steve was reportedly against having slots in the Apple II and felt even stronger about slots for the Mac. He decreed that the Macintosh would remain perpetually bereft of slots, enclosed in a tightly sealed case with only the limited expandability of the two serial ports. Macintosh hardware designer Burl Smith and his assistant Brian Howard understood Steve's rationale, but they felt differently about the proper course of action. Burl had already watched the Macintosh's hopelessly optimistic schedule begin to slip indefinitely and he couldn't predict when the Max pioneering software would be finished, if ever. Afraid that Moore's law would render the hardware obsolete before it ever came to market, he thought it was prudent to build in as much flexibility as possible as long as the cost wasn't excessive. Burrell added a single slot to the design, making the processor's bus available to peripherals. The design was simple and cost very little. He worked out the details and proposed it at the weekly staff meeting but Steve Jobs immediately nixed the idea, stating that there was no way that the Mac would have even a single slot. But Burl was not that easily thwarted. If the Mac was never going to have something called a slot, perhaps the same functionality could take some other form. After talking it over with Brian, they began calling it the diagnostic port instead of a slot arguing that it would save money during manufacturing if testing devices could access the processor bus to diagnose faults. They conveniently forgot to mention that the same port would also provide the functionality of a slot. This was received positively at first, but after a couple of weeks, engineering manager Rod Holt caught on to what was happening, probably aided by occasional giggles when the diagnostic port was mentioned. That thing's really a slot, right? You're trying to sneak in a slot, Rod finally accused us at the next engineering meeting. Well, that's not going to happen. Even though the diagnostic port was scuttled, it wasn't the last attempt at surreptitious hardware expandability. During the final redesign of the Mac's motherboard in August 1982, the next generation of RAM chips was already on the horizon. The Macintosh used 16 64-kilobit RAM chips, giving it 128 kilobytes of memory. The next generation of chips were 256 kilobits, which would yield 512 kilobytes, a huge difference. Burl was afraid the 128 kilobyte Mac would seem inadequate soon after launch, and users had no way to add RAM. But he had the realization that the board could support next generation RAM chips simply by routing a few extra lines on the motherboard. This would let adventurous people who knew how to wield a soldering iron Replace the existing RAM chips with larger ones. The extra lines cost only pennies to add. But once again, Steve Jobs objected. Customers shouldn't be mucking about with the innards of their computers, and they should be buying new 512K Macintoshes instead of purchasing memory from third parties. This time, however, Burl prevailed because the change was so minimal. He just left the additional lines there. No one bothered to mention them to Steve much to the eventual benefit of customers who didn't have to buy a whole new Macintosh to expand their memory. Comments on Folklore.org In January 2004, Henry wrote, There was a row of seven holes in the PCB near the RAM array, which brought together most of the signals needed to decode extra addresses to expand RAM. A remnant of the diagnostic port? Fat Ho worked out an ingenious circuit, which added another bank of 512k, and I helped him design a piggyback card at Tech. I knew our design was right when it was copied by a dozen others within two months. In fact, I upgraded your Mac. Presumably he's addressing, no pun intended, Andy Hertzfeld. Comment from Jeff Raskin, January 30th, 2004. I don't have time to write out the details in full, But this account has massive errors. The bus diagnostic port was something I wanted. It was to work like the expansion slot on the Poly 88s that we used to use in the pubs department. I wanted to be able to get at the bus and expand the system, and I have no idea where the story originated that I did not. As usual, I wrote up the proposal in the book of Macintosh, and readers who want facts and dates can go look it up for themselves on the Stanford site. One of the reasons I joined Apple was in admiration of Woz's electronics. For example, the pre-decoded bus that made cards for the Apple II so much smaller and simpler than S100 cards. I suspect that Andy does not know that long before coming to Apple, I had designed computers from the ground up and built them. Later, I built many kits beginning with the Altair. I was nowhere in the same league as a hardware designer as Waz or Burl, but I did understand the issues and details. I still design or build electronics when I need something, and I solder a mean connection. Comment from Jorg Brown in July 2004. Wow, I always wondered about that. I mean, for the solder-on 512K upgrades, you had to put in an extra chip, but it was amazing to me how minimal the upgrade was. We... Macintosh outsiders always assumed that the reason for the minimalistic changes necessary had to do with trying to cut down manufacturing changes when the eventual 512k Mac came out. It's awesome that Burl did that for us. I was still in college when I upgraded my first Mac. The fact that it cost $400 in parts versus $1,000 from Apple meant that it was actually financially possible. In fact, since my dad worked at HP, we were eventually able to get HP's prices on RAM chips. By the spring of 1985, the parts cost was closer to $40, and I was making money on the side upgrading people's Macs. Comment from Daniel Abrams, December 2004. An early Macintosh design document written by Jeff Raskin seems to outline his feelings about expandability. See Design Considerations for an Anthropomorphic Computer Comment from Raymond Ritchie, January 2005. We, as students, used to do the RAM upgrades for Mac owners who didn't have the money to buy a new 512K Mac. I upgraded my own Mac first, and with sweat in one hand and Weller soldering iron in the other, we operated on the 128K board with utmost care. A small blob of solder got us scared when turning it on and a sad Mac appeared, but a close inspection brought out the short, and there it was. A whopping 512K! I got the schematic to do the upgrade from a Unix administrator. It was a small file in Mac Paint, and Hexbin used to decode it. What times? Comment from Peter Svard, February 2005. It is indeed very interesting that the Rev-A iMac sported the Mezzanine expansion slot, which was described as a diagnostic port before 3DFX Voodoo cards started showing up for it. History repeats itself. Comment from Matt Delvecchio, May 2007. Raskin's anthrophilic computing essay is great. Say what you will about Raskin, but some of his ideas were very ahead of their time and spot on. Note the idea that users should be more concerned with case color than internal upgrades, and in 1999, that's exactly what happened with the fruity IMAX, though I wish we also had the $500 price tag
1: color is a really big deal to consumers. Let's bring them out. Can we bring the IMAX out, please? <clears throat> the new IMAX for 19 they're in five colors. Blueberry, grape, tangerine, lime, and strawberry. And we hope that people want to collect all five. <clears throat> One of the most important questions now when you buy a computer is going to be, what's your favorite color? (laughs) And in our consumer surveys, this is far more important than most of the mumbo-jumbo associated with buying a consumer computer. Megabytes, megahertz, gigabytes. People don't care about that stuff. They want to trust us to give them a really great computer. What they care about is, I want to express myself and pick the color I want.
0: Comment from John Sawyer, September 2007. I remember being shown a Mac Plus in the Beck Tech lab the winter of 1985 before it was released in January 86. It was shown to me with the pronouncement, This is what's going to put your memory upgrade business out of business. At the time, my company had been doing RAM upgrades on 128k Macs for several months, based on the famous Dr. Dobbs article, clipping out 16 64K RAM chips per logic board, 256 pins per board, and soldering in 256 kilobit RAM chips in their place, and also soldering in a little decoder board at that row of 7 holes that Henry describes above on the first revision of the 128K logic board. The second revision of the 128K logic board was similar or identical to the 512K logic board. Apple kept making both the 128 and the 512k Mac sizes for another year, and so it had a location on the logic board where the decoder chip and a couple of resistors could be directly soldered to the board. The upgrade was a tedious task, so when I saw the Mac Plus and its clip-in RAM board upgrade, I was both alarmed and relieved. It took another year or two for the demand for 128 to 512k upgrades to dry up, since this manual approach to upgrading cost less than buying a Mac Plus, or even a 512k Mac, but when we stopped doing these manual upgrades, I was glad not to have to breathe the fumes from the solder and circuit board cleaner every day, not entirely removed by the big fans we had in the ceilings that pulled the fumes outside. The market for even bigger upgrades had a lifespan of several more years. 2-meg and 4-meg Monster Macs from Levco, BecTech upgrades, Dove upgrades, etc. Too many of these had mechanical problems in remaining connected to the logic board, requiring many hours of frustrating repair and replacement. So when the market for these dried up, I was glad to see them go, too.